Hello and welcome to Straight From The Hot Tap special guest interviews. When we started interviewing people for the podcast, I think more than anything else we wanted to find ordinary people with extraordinary stories. People who hadn't perhaps followed the normal path through life. People who had been through education the same way that we all had and hadn't taken the same path. Hadn't been press ganged into university and hadn't ended up working in a dull corporate job pushing a pen around, making lots of money and going and buying a house somewhere in the country. What I've actually found is that these people aren't ordinary at all. They're actually extraordinary. People who've had the bravery at a critical point in their lives to really follow a dream or follow a path that perhaps other people were doubting. And when they come out the other side of it, some of the experiences that they've had, the places that they've been, the people they've met and the things they've achieved really do seem both interesting and fascinating to somebody that spent the majority of their life sat behind a desk. This next guest, Ben, I met him at a stag do for my cousin a few years ago. Now, my cousins are both high achievers. They're both pilots for British Airways, both good-looking, sporty types. And it became quite apparent when we were out and about in Southampton that being a pilot comes with a certain set of benefits. Let's just say once word got round that there were a group of pilots in the nightclub, girls started behaving differently. Now, Ben was the best man at this particular stag do. He'd organised it. He'd done a fantastic job of giving us all a great experience. And there we were, stood outside with this group of pilots and watching the way people behaved around them. It really got me at that time thinking about the definition of what we call hero. People that do dangerous jobs are naturally interesting. I can see why people might find that attractive. But when I got chatting to Ben, it really struck me that actually he was the hero. Ben's an unassuming sort of bloke. He's kind and funny and witty, but he's certainly not in your face. He's certainly not flashy. He's certainly not somebody who you're going to instantly notice as they walk down the street. And yet when I listened to Ben talking about his adventures, about captaining a 60-foot yacht on the high seas with a crew of untrained sailors, about teaching people to sail, about having the responsibility of life and death over a group of people, and not just that, seeing firsthand how violent and dangerous the earth could be, I really thought, actually, we've got things wrong. The people we celebrate in this country are not always the ones that wear the shiniest clothes. They're not always the ones that talk about it much. They're often the people behind the scenes that do extraordinary things. And Ben is definitely one of those. This interview I found fascinating to do. As somebody that spends their time at work interviewing people for a living, I'm used to tales of great achievements of people that have turned companies around, who have invented things, leaders of men. And yet none of these people have faced the danger and adversity that Ben has. None of them have passed on their passions the way Ben has. There's a point in this interview where I asked Ben what he's gained from his experiences. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but his answer really tells the tale. I hope you enjoy listening to this interview. Ben certainly has a fascinating tale to tell. And Ben's story very much represents what this podcast is all about. This is Straight From The Hot Tap, special guest interviews. This is an interview for Straight From The Hot Tap with Ben Bowley. Ben has had a very interesting career uh, in the, the sailing industry. On the theme that we've had over the last couple of podcast episodes of forging our path, of finding our way from that. Um, adolescent period of, of uh, not knowing what you want to do with your life to becoming a, a, a reluctant and often very unqualified adult. 
going off and doing interesting things and forging your career. So Ben is one of these people that really hasn't done the normal school, university, job in a bank thing. He's been and done some amazing things. And today I'm really excited to have him on so that we can hear his story. So welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thank you very much for having me, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Ben, like with anything, the best starting point is really just to say, who are you? You're similar age to me, from a similar part of the world to me. And yet your experience of life is radically different. So how did you go from that adolescent sat in a, in a, in a West Country classroom, l- looking out the window, no doubt wondering why you were studying trigonometry and facts about the English Civil War to uh, going around the world in a, in a yacht and doing some incredible things along the way? It's always an interesting one to try and answer the question with who are you? I don't think any of us really know, do we? For me, it, it was an interesting experience through school because from the age of a very small child, I had a a very strong conviction that I wanted to be a fighter pilot for the RAF. I was obsessed with planes and anything that flew and just generally things that moved as well, to be honest. I think apparently my first word was car. So, <laughs> <there's>, uh, <laughs> so anything that involved sort of driving and operating machinery, to be honest. So uh, my first career choice was actually to join the RAF. I quite enjoyed the sort of structure of the CCF and the military side of things. That was interesting. Yeah. Where did that come from, Ben? Is that something that's from? That's a family thing? You know, you're from a military family? No, it's not, actually. It's not. I think I've just always been fascinated by aeroplanes, uh, and I still am to this day, to be completely honest. I'm an absolute plane geek. All my friends take the mick out of me when uh, anything flies over and, you know, ask me to name what it is. And the embarrassing thing is 90% of the time I can name what's flying over. (laughs) I think it's just that fascination of kind of, if I were to get philosophical about it, it, to break the soily bonds of earth and um, soar up in the sky. And to me, it was the ultimate freedom. And Still to this day, very obsessed with space travel and exploration, really, and, and being able to cover vast distances in a short period of time. I think, I think that's where the appeal comes from for me. So where did you grow up, Ben? My dad was, uh, he used to work for the ODA, which is uh, now DFID. So it used to be the Overseas Development Administration, and his background was fisheries development. So I was actually born in a place called Vanuatu, which is in the South Pacific. Yeah, so I lived there till I was about five and came back to England for probably only about a year before dad got another contract out in Sri Lanka. Didn't really move back to the UK and live here permanently till I was about nine years old and a fair bit more traveling around from from place to place. And I think I think I worked out the other day that uh, up to the age of 20, I'd moved house probably about 20 times. So, um, so to sort of place myself, I'd say the place I feel most at home and where I really came of age was in Winchester. I was at school down in um, down in Dorset, a place called Claysmore. Did did my GCSEs there, and then decided to to leave public school and go to a sixth form college in Winchester to Peter Simmons College. And that's really that was the first time in my life I really felt completely myself and uh, really grew into myself and and started to kind of develop some really solid lifelong friendships and things like that. So if you were to ask me where I consider home i still consider home these days as winchester really how do you think that that moving around and that regular change of of scenery and environment shaped your decisions over the the course of your career i think when i was younger i kind of craved that stability and a desire to kind of be able to form friendships and not be moving around all over the place but actually i then ended up choosing a variety of different uh, careers that took me all over the world so I think we have this conscious understanding of of what we think we want and then are still very much shaped by by our life experience. And so I think it was a real 
double-edged sword what i what i loved about my early years and certainly the traveling i did later on was i really enjoyed experiencing and interacting with different cultures and you know seeing everything all the good all the bad all the ugly that that the world has to offer and i think looking back on my life there were some key moments that then shaped my career certainly in the last five or six years or so so early career dead set on military or at least aviation well yeah very specifically the aviation side of it so so i i i actually applied to the raf i heard they did fantastic things like sponsoring people through university and all that good stuff so went in for the recruiter's office and did some very basic tests really and it was all going rather well and we started having a conversation about eyesight and i've never worn glasses although i do have a very slight stigmatism in my left eye and i just remember this moment so clearly of the uh, recruiting officer explaining to me he said look unless you have literally perfect vision you will never fly a plane for the RAF and i started asking some questions i was like what about transport what about you know i understand that for fast jets etc cetera, etc cetera, and or maybe you know backseat navigator something like that and he said no and we can afford to be that picky you know they have thousands of applications a year for tens of jobs really so they they have to set the selection criteria somewhere and it was a real shame for me at the time but looking back where would i have been you know this was me applying in sort of 2000ish something like that sort of year 2000 2001 so and i'd have probably been out to afghanistan the middle east and gulf 2 and you know so actually looking back it's 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 probably quite a positive thing that it didn't happen I went through a similar experience myself, and I was dead set on the RAF as a pilot as well uh, in my teens, uh, and went through a similar journey with you. I was told it wasn't my eyesight that was the problem. It was the fact that I'm basically a, a single-celled amoeba intellectually. So that was what prevented me from, from following that dream, uh, was realising that I didn't quite have the aptitude for it. It was interesting to go through that, though, at that age, because I, I guess up until that point, I'd, on the whole, achieve what I set out to achieve you know I, I wasn't the world's most motivated person but I'll uh, definitely admit to that but most things I turned my hand to I found I was quite good at so to be told that that wasn't a career path that was open to me was a I remember feeling quite down about it actually you know, how did you find that experience of being told you're not up to it it was a very strange experience to be honest with you Matt because I think my entire life as I say from from when I can first remember really looking up at planes and thinking, yep, that's what I'm going to do. And I had very supportive parents who were you know, always telling me, look, if you work hard, you can you can achieve whatever you want and put your mind to something and, and work hard, you can, you can get there. And that had been my drive and my motivation, certainly in terms of academics. And I knew I needed to get good results in certain subjects before I'd be considered. So that was my real inspiration. And, and to be totally honest with you, two things happened at once, which was I left the private education sector, which the only reason I'd got into it in the first place was I'm a little bit dyslexic. And I was told that I was just lazy and I wasn't trying hard enough and these sort of things because I could kind of answer all the questions in class verbally. But you asked me to sit down, do an assignment or, or put pen to paper, I really struggled. So I knew that sort of a vocational career path was was the way forward for me and had always wanted to do that. I then left uh, after my GCSEs, having got 
really very good results and everything that I could have hoped for there to move to a sixth form college for A-levels and kind of discovered that there was a different side to life to me. Uh, and I think I had a very strong feeling, certainly after my first year at sixth form, that university wasn't going to be right for me. I needed to be doing something that was much more vocational, very hands-on. So I think it was a bit like having the rug swept out from underneath me to a certain extent. And I can, yeah. I can empathize with where you were, which was that this is something I've always wanted to do. And then suddenly it wasn't an option. The college I went to was much more of a kind of halfway house to university. And the one thing it taught me was if there was pubs and bars and cars and girls and all this sort of stuff that I was generally very easy distracted by those things and, <laughs> and self-motivation and, and being there studying outside of, uh, of sort of school time was something I struggled with a bit. Adulthood creeps up on you pretty damn quickly, doesn't it, as well? Mm. Uh, you know, the one thing I, I always say about university for me was it, it gave me four years to grow the fuck up, frankly. I look back now with a certain degree of embarrassment at how much difficulty I had in basic adult tasks when I was 19, 20 uh, as an undergraduate. So getting to a nine o'clock lecture on a Monday morning seemed like the world's most impossible task. You know, m managing a crazy and, you know, hugely problematic timetable of 20 hours a week was uh, the <laughs> right, stuff yeah. of nightmares for me back then, <laughs> you know. And I often look back and think, do you know what? If only I know now what I knew then, I'd have approached it differently. But then the other side of me says, do you know what? That four years was vital to growing up, to understanding what the adult world's like. So going into yeah. the adult world at 18, I was desperately unprepared for it and lacked the maturity, lacked the, sav you know, the savviness. And you also lack the, the life skills to deal with adverse situations because, let's, let's face it, it can be quite easy. I think I wasn't particularly happy at, at those schools as well. I never really quite fitted in. I remember very clearly when in the summer, summer holidays between Playsmore and Simmons, I remember the conversation in my head going something along the lines of, look, there's so many more people. There's about two and a half thousand people there split over two years. You know, if you just go and be your weird, crazy, slightly odd self, you're bound to have a couple of friends because I, I think Claysmore was about 350 people. And, you know, I never quite fitted into any of the particular cliques. I wasn't in the geeky side of things but I was relatively smart I wasn't in the sort of sporty side of things although I was in the first team for quite a few sports teams so I was in this sort of no man's land and when I got to Clay's, uh, to Simmons and decided just to 100% be myself and not try and fit in and ended up having more friends than than I, I, I ever made before in my life and some really solid solid friendships who who i'm still very close with to this day do you feel that that concept of fitting in was driven by the school or the environment you were in deciding what good looked like and everybody else had to attain that standard and that culture or was it just inherent in you i think i think it was a bit of both to be honest i mean i i was slightly odd that you know, I'd moved around so much. So I, I remember coming back to the UK and going to school and everyone was taking the piss out of gingers, ginger people. That's what they were going on about the whole time. And I just did not get it. You know, I'd grown up in a country where, where there weren't really any ginger people um, or the few that were, were sort of seen as quite interesting and, and different. So, I mean, that's just one little snapshot. You know, some of the cultural norms and things that people grow up with. I mean, I wasn't into football 
like I'd never really watched football and you know when I, people would ask me what team I supported and I told them I wasn't really into football people would give me weird looks and so so that's one side of it and then on the flip side of that I think there was just purely because it was quite a small school there was inevitably certain groups that were around and I think I'd struggled a bit I was quite frustrated at points in life that I could have a you know, an intellectual conversation with people it's a quite a good level of depth about things. But then certain teachers were sort of looking at me and saying, you seem smart, but what you're writing down in front of you here doesn't necessarily translate to that. So, so you must be lazy. Obviously, at some point, you ended up in the sailing industry. So talk <laughs> me through that transition. That's, you know, uh, quite a, well, very different to, to being in the air, but I'm guessing similar from the point of view that you're making stuff move. Um, and you're managing the elements. My dad was into dinghy sailing, as was my my granddad on on my mum's side, and my mum as well to a certain extent. And so the the decision for me to kind of move into the sailing industry was, oh yeah, you know, I enjoy sailing. I love sailing. I, I windsurfed at the time as well. I was pretty into my water sports. So I thought that was a great thing to do for a year or two while I worked out what it was going to be that I actually wanted to do. And I found out you had to have this thing called a yacht master <laughs> and uh, started looking <laughs> into that and realized that there was uh, quite a bit of training to go through to, to get commercially endorsed to obviously be responsible for people's lives at sea, <laughs> and um, <laughs> which makes a lot of sense to me now. Um, <laughs> so I, I actually ended up going over to the UKSA, so the United Kingdom Sailing Academy over in Cowes on the Isle of Wight for an open day with them and PCST course, which is professional crew and skipper training course was kind of a I know a lot of people call these zero to hero type courses and that's really what it was it was uh, kind of four months of very intense training to get you up to the point you were ready to sit your yacht master exam you know I went over there and had a chat with the chat with the guys and found out it was, it was somewhere in the region of about 10 11 thousand pounds which again was a sort of bit of a crushing blow to me at the time I was like look I'm not going to be able to pull that sort of money together and you know look at career development loans etc and it was actually a chap who I'll be eternally grateful to is a guy called Frank Fletcher who at the time was one of the um one of the people that was recruiting people in to the college there he came up to me you know have you found it and would you be interested and I explained this about the finance side of it and he he said look don't take this the wrong way, but I don't suppose you've got any learning difficulties, have you? <laughs> <laughs> was it because you kept licking windows yeah, in the uh, exactly. in the waiting room? Was it, was exactly. It like <laughs> so no, he um, he mentioned this to me, and I said, "Well, yeah, I'm I'm a bit dyslexic." He said, "Well, look, you know, have you got certification to prove it?" I said, "Yeah, I went through all this a number of times. Would you be interested in applying for EU funding?" And he said uh, the the European Union funds two people per course per intake if they have learning difficulties. There'll be a selection process, etc. But if you're interested and you want to apply for that, I'll happily put you forward. And that was it. And as I started to do the training, I I really came to realise I was like, God, you really can make a career out of this. And it was operating machinery, but it was not just driving a piece of machinery. It's it's working with team and a crew of people and not fighting the elements but really using them to your best advantage and working in harmony with nature and all those sort of things really started to appeal and came out the other side of it deciding not to go straight out and be a flotilla skipper out in Greece and Turkey but if I was going to make a real stab at this as a career I'd learned a lot of information in a very short period of time 
when I was aware if I went and just sort of started doing flotilla skippering out in, in, in the Mediterranean, I would lose a lot of those finer skills of kind of tidal calculations and, and the more intricate, complex parts of navigation that you just don't use on a daily basis. So I had a brilliant instructor, a chap called Sam Connolly, who actually recommended to me, he said, look, if you want to really consolidate what you've learned in the last four or five months, the best way to do that is to go and teach. I realized I, I had a, a real passion for teaching and for coaching people and for training and opening people's eyes to this fantastic world of, of sailing and, and the sea. It was very enjoyable for me to be able to, to give somebody that gift is how I saw it. And, and you would do maybe a, a five-day competent crew course and you'd have four or five people on board and now some people would would kind of get it and they were clearly doing it because well let's give this a go and see what happens but normally at least every week at least one person on the crew you could see there was just a little look that came into their eye after doing a training session on something this little glint in their eye this person's going to be a sailor they get it they love it. One thing that the sailing industry is often criticised for is being inaccessible and, to a degree, elitist. Mm. How does that sit with your love of sharing your passion with, with everybody? I think it's very interesting that in the UK specifically, we have a very strong view that yachting is an elitist sport. Mm. And this is understandable. I can understand why people see this because they feel that you have to be a member of a yacht club and the cost of owning a yacht is is uh, prohibitively expensive. And the simple fact is that's just not true. It is just a perception that we have. You can pick up a something like an Enterprise, a little 14-foot sailing dinghy with a road trailer, and if you've got a tow bar on the back of your car, um, you can pick something like that up for about 500 quid. Um, in wow. perfectly saleable condition. Yeah, you might need to get some buoyancy aids and wetsuits, but you can be out on the water sailing for a, about a thousand pounds. And yes, moving into sort of high end yachting it can be very expensive, but mm. it is incredibly accessible. I remember the first time I took a crew over to Cherbourg in France from the Isle <laughs> of Wight. And I think it was a Wednesday afternoon and we were yeah. tied up in the marina. And suddenly, at the end of the uh, slipway in the marina, these three minibuses full of kids turned up, and these kids all came down, and they started pulling their little optimists out. They were all buzzing around the bay in their oppies and smashing into each other, etc. Now, the French have a very different attitude towards sailing, and if you live on the coast, you know, I remember asking one of the instructors, I said, look, yeah, well, what is this? Are you a sailing club? I said, no, no, this is the afternoon at school that everyone goes sailing. It's just another sport people do, just like you right. might play hockey or football or, or anything like that. So at one end, you've kind of got dinghy sailing and, and, and mm. that side of things, which is incredibly accessible, right through to multi-million pound yachts and everything in between. I mean, as right. an example, having spent a number of years as a, as a yachtsman, I wanted to own my own boat. Now, I had to compromise in some ways, and I had a choice between buying a flat, really, a small, tiny little one-bedroom mm. flat, <laughs> stretching myself, or I could use the money that I'd save for a deposit, and for about well, just less than ten thousand pounds, 
I bought myself a 30-foot sailing yacht. The only way I could justify that that expense was to live on board. And I spent three <laughs> years li living on board this yacht. Wow. I paid less money than I would have been paying in rent. I paid less money in fuel. You know, my carbon footprint was negligible. I had the boat parked in the marina right next to where I worked. So I used to walk to work every morning. You know, you, you can totally make it work. Is that important to you then? You mentioned carbon footprint. Uh, is that something that's become important to you having seen the world really and, and the, 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 the way it's probably changed over the last 20 years or so? As I get older now, yeah, that definitely is something I, I bear in mind. And I, that's a whole separate conversation we could open up into. But yeah, very I, much so. I, to surmise my view on it, I feel slight frustration at the, the world's almost guilt-tripping individuals into reducing their individual personal carbon footprint because mm. although i think that is important and that will help generate a bit of a groundswell what really needs to happen is it's the big industries it, it the change needs to come from very much from the top so i think it is important that we all are all conscious of it and we do what we can but i think what would really count is to change our habits so that that alters how the economy is structured and you know people are just more conscious i don't think it's a bad thing to take a a flight to somewhere for a holiday i think what's more concerning is if uh, and obviously the last 18 months has changed this but if someone's flying to new york on a monday and they're flying to delhi on a on a wednesday and then they're off to bangkok on a friday to just have a face to face meeting with someone they could have had a zoom conversation with I think those side of things really needs to be improved. The one good thing I think that's come out of the coronavirus crisis is that, that people have realised that the world doesn't stop turning if they're not sat on the motorway yeah. heading to a, you know, a, a conference or a meeting or something at, you know, down in London or something. Uh, it's been life-changing for people. One thing that's always struck me about sailing, and I've been sailing a, a few times over the years, is they are bloody dangerous places, boats, aren't they? Um, <laughs> no, they let, let's be. be honest. You know, yeah. the, the image that you see on Insta of people lounging on sun lounges, taking hmm. the rays in a, a sun sun kissed skipper, grinning at the helm in his in his aviators, look, look, living the dream. The reality of sailing can be frightening at times yeah taking inexperienced people out on the water must really test not just your patience and your technical skills but also your, your self-confidence yeah definitely very much so and i think i think there's an element of it being great that i started it so young you know i was i was working commercially when i was what 19 years old and i think when you are 19 years old and you're a relatively confident person like myself there was a part of you that it's it's like I, I have confidence in my abilities. I have confidence in my abilities to keep people safe. And because you haven't been exposed necessarily to some horrendous situations, which I since have, uh, I think your understanding is a, is a bit more, I won't say naive, but there's, there's more of, it'll be fine <laughs> type attitude. <laughs> I've always been an incredibly safety conscious individual. And I think, you know, the skipper has has a great responsibility, but also a great power to to set the culture on board of looking out for each other and looking at all the things that could potentially go wrong and trying to mitigate against those as best you can. There is an element of the pressure and certainly uh, less so on your average day sail in the Mediterranean somewhere where if somebody falls over the side, it's all jolly good laugh and you turn the boat around and pick them back up because the sea temperature is what, 28 degrees or so. Taking people out on yachting courses in 
February when the sea temperature in northern Europe or so is, is down around maybe 8 degrees or 10 degrees or so, if that person's over 50 or 60 years old, there's every chance that the moment they hit the water, their heart's going to stop just from the cold shock. So you mentioned in, in passing there about some horrendous situations you've been in. Obviously, our listeners are only really interested in disaster and mayhem and chaos. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be wrong of me not to ask about those times where you see Mother Nature at its most destructive and most frightening. In the truest sense of the word, yeah, Mother Nature is awesome. And I think what yachting has given me a real understanding and, and, a, and a humbleness for is of our insignificance in the world. We feel we're awfully self-important and, uh, you know, we're a very clever species that is in very much in charge of our own destiny, but, you know, it can be wiped out in the moment. To think of some sort of specific incidents, I certainly remember the first time I ever had to send a mayday was actually in one of those idyllic type situations. And to cut a long story short, what would end up happening was the, the propeller shaft um, had come out of the back of the boat. So we ended up with a what sort of two and a half inch hole in the bottom of the boat. But it, it wasn't initially apparent what had happened. The first I knew of it was I walked down the steps of the companionway and, and got down below and suddenly went shin deep in water. We were, <laughs> we were about six, five, six miles off the south coast of Gran Canaria at the time doing a yachting course out there. Didn't know where the water was coming from. I had a bunch of green students on, on deck and suddenly everything went from just a lovely afternoon on the water to, right, this is, this is serious. But in those situations, it's amazing how you just flip into into all the training and everything comes flooding back to you that, you, that you've learned and remembered uh, over the years. And we went through the various procedures and drills and um, started head back to port. And now as it was, I, I was actually relatively calm at the time. I didn't feel worried or stressed. And we ended up uh, finding the source of, of the water ingress and stuck a bung in it and everything was to a certain extent fine there. Uh, the next challenge was then uh, we were then able to kind of pump water out faster than it was coming in, so we were no longer technically sinking. We were we were floating a bit more every minute. I felt completely calm. Everything was fine. We got the boat tied up, and uh, one of the other one of my colleagues, who was on the pontoon court lines, um, they they took the the crew off and took them straight to the bar for a stiff drink, I think. And it was the moment the boat was tied up. I, I remember this chap so well, a guy called Eddie Dengler, and he was uh, another one of the skippers, a South African guy, lovely chap. And he, he handed me a lit cigarette and an open can of Heineken. <laughs> and I, I remember saying, I'm fine, you know? And I sat down on the bollard and I went to put, you know, one of the two to my mouth. And suddenly my hands just started shaking. I was had oh. beer spilling all over the place. And it was, it was that moment, like, and this was a, an incredible experience to, to, to loop this back to your main point was it's amazing what we are capable of, of as humans when there is no mm. other choice. And right, actually yeah. the feeling of calm that I had in that situation was, was mm. incredible. But then the moment it was over and everything was okay, that was it, the shock sort of set in and i was i was all right 10 minutes later or so but that was the first time i'd oh. kind of had a, a serious incident on on the boat and there were many more <laughs> over the years <Wow>. but <laughs> self-doubt though i don't know you well enough ben to to know whether that's something that creeps in for you sometimes but certainly one thing that we discussed at length in, in previous episodes is that sense of feeling like you're an imposter that you're doubting your ability and 
you don't feel like you've got the you've earned the right to be there and yet there you are i've stood in front of groups of rugby players and just thought what the fuck am i doing here why <laughs> yeah. why would they listen to me i'm a complete fraud and you see this these 30 pairs of eyes looking at you hanging off of your every word that can give you an amazing sense of power but an incredible dose of anxiety as well i think there's two sides of this for me one if i look at my sailing career i don't mean to sound arrogant when i say this but i think starting at 19 as i did i was empowered certainly by the the naivety and innocence of youth back then and being such a safety conscious individual and, and putting a lot of time and effort into these things and really focusing on trying to make the experience as safe as possible and, and not taking on jobs or opportunities that i didn't feel comfortable in and, and making sure that I really built up my experience in a very slow and progressive manner to move forward. So from a sailing perspective, it was not something I ever really experienced. Now, that's not to say there were times when I was, for example, doing the clipper race where I would suddenly pinch myself and go, what on earth am I doing out here with these people? You know, this is, this is really, this is full on. And yeah. that was, that was a, you know, from a leadership perspective, there was a real feeling of needing to kind of overcome any feelings of self-doubt because you've got all eyes on you. And, you know, before I did the Clipper Race, I'd not crossed the Pacific Ocean. I'd not sailed through the South, uh, you know, the Southern Ocean or anything like that. And some of the seascapes that we saw were, you know, quite literally terrifying. And, and my old chairman at Clipper, uh, Sir Robin Knox Johnson, always made the point that he said anyone that goes to sea regularly and says they're never scared is either a bloody fool or a bloody liar um, <laughs> because and he's he, he's right there were definite moments of going to walk on deck and looking at the seascape around you and going christ this is this is pretty fruity out here but at the same time knowing that if if i walked on deck looking wide-eyed and pale-skinned the effect that was going to have on the morale of the crew was was huge so you kind of take yourself and you look in the mirror and have a little word with yourself and get up and, and the way i dealt with it was kind of humor i'd kind of get on deck and say oh guys you know a bit fruity up here today isn't it but you know <laughs> good day for sailing but i think we'll keep the champagne on ice for the rest of the afternoon you know those sort of things so one side of it yes and where it's been of more interest i think is in you know, since I've kind of moved ashore and mm. I've put myself in, in certain positions and recently set up a business uh, with a business partner of mine. And there are definitely moments where I find myself in a, in a meeting talking about something that at one minute I'm completely confident about and I feel like I'm a relatively good subject matter expert on. And somewhere in the back of my mind, there's a little voice going, do you do you really understand this? Are you really a subject matter <laughs> expert? Like, who are you to speak? You're just some guy that's messed around on boats his whole life. Like, yeah, you know, you've not worked and lived in the corporate world for that long. And, and you know, to be turning around to people who are very successful business people, set up their own company 20 years ago and give them advice on leadership, you know, team development and those sort of things. There's definitely those moments that creep in for sure. Josh has joined us. I can uh, see him in the wings with the handle fashionably late. There's nothing fashionable about being an hour late, Josh. I apologise. Um, hi, Ben. Nice to meet you. Um, hi, sorry Josh. I'm late. I've been uh, been under the cosh with work. Uh, we've just been talking, Josh. Um, I'm sure you picked up a little bit of it about that feeling of being an imposter, that you're not qualified to be somewhere, and how that can kind of fire you on sometimes. It can give you that urgency and that sort of, if you like, impetus to go and find stuff out and, and, and be not become knowledgeable about things but it can also 
properly cripple you, can't it? I mean, you've obviously been through that a little bit in your career journey, haven't you, with the acting side of things? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, I suppose, well, when you're starting out in something or trying to get somewhere, you're going to be at a point where you're surrounded by people who've done more than you and know more than you. And that can obviously in itself be a huge learning curve and a huge boost if those people are helpful, obviously, and, 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 and sort of trying to nurture where you're trying to get to. But I certainly felt like that with acting, yeah, where you, you just feel out of your depth at the beginning. I mean, I've, I, you know, I've got a, more than 10 years experience now under my belt. And when I go onto a set, I feel like I, I know what I'm doing. I know how to, how to be in that environment. And that, that in itself makes me immediately a lot more comfortable than I was at the beginning. But that said, if I, if I ended up landing a role tomorrow, doing a scene with like a major actor, I would feel that imposter syndrome. I'd feel right back to the beginning probably nerves wise yeah i'd be nervous but then again it does help you yeah like you say it kind of spurs you on and has it, it means that you've got to front up and just get on with it i suppose one of the bits of advice that's really stuck with me over the years i went to a retirement do for a guy a little while ago and i went up to him over a beer and i said you know look you know congratulations on your retirement you must it must be amazing getting to the end and looking back at all the things you've done and that great sense of achievement and all the rest of it and I said, how are you feeling? And he, and he turned around to me and said, Matt, my overwhelming feeling is I can't believe I got away with it for that long. <laughs> and whilst it made me laugh, mm. it showed me that we're all acting to some degree, aren't we? We're all imposters to some degree. Everyone's but, making it up as they go along. Right, yeah. exactly. And sometimes you become that expert almost without realising you're that expert. You, you blag it up to the point where you suddenly one day you wake up and and you're that, and you're an expert, and I, I, you know, it's it's really interesting how that happens, isn't it? It's so true. I think experience itself is is the only thing that sort of can eventually, you know, like you say, I think it's almost other people's opinion of you rather than your opinion of yourself, and let, depending on how sort of confident you are and who you are. But if someone else looks up to you and and wants to value your opinion, then I guess in some ways you've made it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Although it's interesting, Ben, ben you, you know, you mentioned there about building out of your depth and, and Josh you mentioned it I've certainly fell out of my depth in business settings occasionally although there's a massive difference between being out of my depth when I'm trying to work out how to recruit 20 people in six weeks on a minimal budget compared to actually being out of your depth above several thousand feet of water in the middle <laughs> of the Pacific that clipper race it must have been the experience of a lifetime but must have tested you like nothing else for me the clipper race was something I was striving towards and something that interested me for a long time because the idea of leading a team of people around the world, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you, the sailing of the boat is, to some extent, was relatively straightforward. Where the biggest challenge was, was forming and leading a team of initially very sort of disparate individuals into into a high performance team and 50% of the race is not about sailing the boat it's just about living eating and sleeping on board and you know there were times we would have 20 of us on board in a, on a 68 foot boat at sea for up to a month at a time with with no kind of outside input so that was the real challenge i really put my effort into going and speaking with as many of the previous race skippers that i could take for dinner and buy a beer or take out for lunch or something and just pump them for information 
and tried to find, you know, what they did that worked, what what they wish they hadn't done, what they wish they'd done more of. So I think for me, the most important part was when we formed as a crew on crew allocation day and spent the best part of a day going through what we wanted to get out of the race. You know, what what sort of campaign were we going to run? How were we going to define what success looked like? And therefore, once we had a definition of success, how were we going to go about affecting in a, a successful race where most of the people were pleased with their experience. I was an enabler. I was enabling these people to have a life-changing experience. And I loved that, but it was an awesome weight of responsibility weighing down on me. What I do and what I did before um, going into acting is working in, I did some crewing work on yachts a, a while ago and done a bit of sailing, but um, I do charter broking so I, I deal with a lot of yacht captains but their job is as you were just saying it's just a kind of managerial role as much as the skill involved of driving a boat and the technical knowledge you have to have what was interesting about clipper was trying to sort of enable these people to have a life-changing experience and balancing that that need to treat them as crew because that's what they were they were race crew and they were you know looking for direction but at the same time also giving them ownership of the experience that they were having and making them enjoy that experience and, and it'd be something that they look back on for the rest of their lives and think was just the most incredible thing they, they had done. One thing I've noticed, Ben, listening to you talk, you haven't included yourself in the discussion of getting something out of it, enjoyment, life-changing, all of that, it, it, that concept of enabling others. What about you? you know, how did you fit into this and and your personal fulfillment in what was no doubt an incredible experience after a number of years working as a as a yacht skipper a race you know charter skipper and instructor i decided i wanted to earn more money so and i decided that that was going to be what would enable me to kind of attain ultimate happiness if i could have the big house and the cars and the range rover and all these sort of things so i went and worked on super yachts for a number of years I had a pretty nice career path mapped out for me, and had I stuck with it, I'd probably be a uh, you know a yacht captain now, pulling in fifteen, eighteen grand a month or so, tax free. But there was a real realization that that didn't bring me joy and satisfaction, and something changed in that experience of working on yachts, of actually realizing that people always say it, but sometimes you need to live it and experience it. That money can't buy you happiness, and actually that wasn't my why. And I then spent a lot of time drilling right down into, you know, introspection and finding out what is my why? What makes me tick? What gives me satisfaction? And it was to answer your question in a very roundabout way there. It was enabling others. And to this day, that's still why I love doing what I'm doing. I, I like to help people, essentially. Now, whether that's help them have a nice time, help them how to learn to sail a yacht or help them work better or have a better experience in in their working life which is more of what I'm doing now and so many of my friends are now kind of moving into those kind of more senior leadership type positions and I think it's interesting you touch on the imposter syndrome because that's very much something I think tends to happen to people kind of around our age we've been doing this long enough now we've got the experience we've got the knowledge and then suddenly we're given quite a you know more of a senior leadership position and so few people are given sort of proper, how, how do you lead people? And what I love about what I do now is 
the ability to give people the tools to make not just their life easier, but their team's life easier. And, and that's what drives me. Ben, what do you feel like you've sacrificed in order to have the path that you've had? And how does that make you feel now? I think for me, uh, and it is about, it's about balancing up and it's different for everyone, isn't it? That sacrifice, I certainly made quite a lot of sacrifices in my early career on yachts of just being you know, there's an opportunity. It's the other side of the world. It might be a nine month contract. You don't know how long you're going to be there. You just go. And I certainly missed some important weddings. I missed some funerals. I missed some really important life events working on yachts where you were getting paid fantastic money. But that was because you were at the beck and call of the boss or the charter guest. If they want to use their boat for the same week that you've got one of your best friend's weddings and a close family member has, has got a funeral, you had a choice, which was you stay, you do the charter, or you quit. You're also around for all the divorce parties now. so <laughs> Yeah, this is true. <laughs> it's quite interesting to, to hear the, you know, the other perspective of that, where you, I guess I'm still in the position where I'm sort of chasing something and in the context of my career sort of sacrificing some of the things that you were sacrificing when you were in, in yachting mm. there's always got to be a compromise yeah there's always a compromise yeah traffic island discs one of our little sections we, we do with guests, uh, we call Traffic Island Discs. I know this was causing you a lot of anxiety, Ben, wasn't it? The oh, idea God, the pressure. God, the, yeah, pressure the pressure of bearing your soul with musical choices <laughs> was intense. So, yeah, just as a reminder, you know, we, we, we choose three songs. One song that reminds us uh, of growing up, um, of that period of our lives where we were transitioning from adolescence to adulthood. I'm still waiting to transition to adulthood myself. I've been hmm. stuck in perpetual adolescence for 40 years. The second song was something that reminds you of a physical place. That third one, just one that makes you happy. And then the third thing was not musical, but it's if you could just relive one day, what would it be and why? I guess a song that was quite impactful on me in that transitional phase, and I'll, I'll talk about it from that moment of being at Peter Simmons, really, and, and suddenly having uh, a really eclectic group of friends again. It was actually Manu Chao's Bongo Bong, and I was lucky enough to see him at Glastonbury around that time as well. And the most incredible thing was so few people had heard of Manu Chao at the time, and he was on the pyramid stage at like one in the afternoon on a Saturday, and I went down with a couple of friends, and there was about a hundred of us just stood in front of this pyramid stage, and he came on on stage with his uh, his guitar and did an amazing little set and put as much effort into it as uh, anyone, I think, in that situation. So, uh, so it would be Manu Chao's Bongo Bong for me. Oh, amazing. Uh, so to think of sort of a song from my upbringing, I suppose, or, or, or something that reminds me of where I'm from, the first few years of my life was very much the expat lifestyle. And there was various different influences from both my mum and my dad. And my dad was more into his sort of electronic music and Jean-Michel Jarre and Mike Oldfield and Cheap Bells and all that good stuff. And, and my mum was sort of more the folk and the Bob Dylan and, uh, you know, kind of rock right through to Rolling Stones, etc. But if I had to really pin it down to one song on one album, uh, it's a song that I've continued to be one of my very favorite songs in the world was uh, Paul Simon's Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. 
And oh, in wow, fact, yeah. that, that entire album of Gracelands, I think it was what came out about three years after I was born and was very much in vogue. And I could just remember, I, you know, I think back to my early years and just hearing that in the background of various parties and things like that. So that, that really stuck with me does to this day i'm gonna throw my dad under a bus right now but <laughs> I, I was brought up on a diet of boney m nothing yeah. wrong with boney m nothing yeah, wrong with abba <laughs> the, 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 the three tenors in concert was on loop in, the, in my dad's car Ooh. you know I, I had to i had to scrap and find and develop my musical tastes over many years because i wasn't given the greatest start in life in that regard but yeah i generally feel happiest when i'm looning around on a dance floor um, at 110 mile an hour so one song that keeps coming up is DJ Fresh Gold Dust, but specifically the Shy FX remix of that. So that never fails to get me on my feet and leaning around the dance floor and trying to encourage as many other people <laughs> uh, around me to get involved as well. Oh, that sounds great. I've got to look that up now. I can't think of it on top <laughs> of my head. That's it. That's some, work, that's some homework for after this. And that day, if you could think about one day over the years, if you could just relive it, it might be for positive reasons or negative reasons. You know, sometimes it's you look back and think of something you could do to change something. I think it would probably be from the Clipper race was at the end of Clipper race was sailing back into Southampton. And we, we finished just off the Isle of Wight was our finish after a year of racing. And all the highs, all the lows that we'd been through was an incredibly emotional day and in the end after a yeah. year of racing it came down to the difference between us making it onto the podium overall and not making it onto the podium i think it was about 12 seconds in the end oh, after wow. a year of no racing for a year's racing oh my <laughs> for a year's racing uh, just Incredible. on the points you know you, you accrued points on various legs etc and, and the last few races had been very tight and we just beat the boat we needed to <laughs> to make it onto the podium we came third overall and just wow. that that experience you know it wasn't just the finishing the race and that side of things but it was then sailing back up southampton water and bringing the boats into ocean village and having you know so many of my my friends stood there with banners and someone had made this amazing huge banner with with a big arrows pointing down and it said ben Bowley's rum is here and there was, uh, <laughs> there was various and, and was things. it there then it was, it was, it was yeah, on ice. Important. They had two eskies. It was brilliant. Oh and, uh, <laughs> but we, we, we arrived in and there was obviously, you know, a lot of parties and stuff, but what really surprised me was listening to everyone talk and I'd been writing a blog every day and I just didn't think people were reading them and people, you know, talking to me about things that I'd written in my blog six months ago. And I was like, it suddenly dawned on me, wow, people are genuinely interested in, in, in what I did. <laughs> that, that wow, sort of... that's really cool. Was it also quite, I'm just imagining after such a sort of intense period with, with your crew and the bonds that you must have had, was it quite bittersweet when, when all that parting was over and you had to kind of, I don't know, go and do something else? It was. It was a, it was a really odd experience. It was that kind of actually just readjusting to you know, living life ashore and not being with this group of people that, I mean, there was about 10 of us on board who had done the whole race and gone all the way around the world. And I'd spent probably 340 odd days out of the last 365 with these people. And to suddenly not be around, it, there was, there was a huge sense of loss. And there was quite a period of mourning afterwards. And, but the big thing that we, you know, we sailed under the strap line was we wanted to win, but not at all costs. And to us, 
our definition of success was that we all come back as better sailors and, and as good friends. And, and we achieved that. You know, there was bits and pieces that went on afterwards, but we're, we're not far off our 10-year uh, reunion, actually. And, and we've started to all get back in touch again, and we're going to try and put something together. Would you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> Once is enough. Um, <laughs> I mean, as I say, it was the most challenging and rewarding thing. I think, I think if, we, you know, if we hadn't made it into the top five, you know, if, if we weren't on the podium and, and I, we hadn't achieved the result that I think we were capable of, I would definitely reconsider it. But I think we, we got everything we needed to out of the race. And yeah, I never say never, but for now, I, I, I finished the race and said, I'm never going sailing yacht racing again unless it's uh, the days end with a cold beer and a hot shower. But, uh, <laughs> I've since broken that rule already, but still. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. L- last question for me, Ben. Um, actually, I- I'll-, I'll put that to you as well, Josh. Why not whilst you're on the call? Who's your biggest inspiration then over your life, if you look at it? Who's the one person that you think, I've learned more from that person than I have anybody else? Wow. You didn't prep me for that question. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to think. On, I'm gonna have to think <laughs> on that one. Goodness, there are so many people that have inspired me throughout my life, and at different times for different reasons. I think probably if I was put on the spot right there and, and asked to talk about it, it'd probably be my sister. So my sister and I are. Um, it's about ten years between us. Mum and dad always said they had the first and the last kid and uh, missed out the two in between, which is a polite way of saying I was a bit of an accident, I think. But <laughs> you, you were a boozy think, night out. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was one of the reasons I was born abroad, actually, because they kind of decided they weren't going to have any more kids and dad started taking taking contracts abroad. But look, so it, it probably would be my sister because, you know, I've always really looked up to her. We, we, we've got, a to this day, got a great relationship. And certainly in those early years, like, you know her wisdom and her viewpoint and we're not the same sort of person and we we look at things in slightly different ways but i think her general attitude and and her philosophical nature towards life and what's important in life has been a great inspiration to me over the years how about you josh i think a lot of different people at different times it's it's hard for me to pin down one person i think i suppose it was a sort of big change of my life where i think i'd been following this sort of conventional thing conventional career path for a very long time and then i think when i made the decision to to, to follow what i wanted to do and uh, become an actor and actually pursue it in a professional way i suppose again i had the support of some really good mates um which including you matt thanks man but i no think worries. when i i went out to la actually and i started to do an acting course and there was this really inspirational acting coach at the at the school called Ron Burris and I guess it was kind of it was a it was a moment between obviously me taking those steps but also him being this kind of gateway in a way to that new career and I suppose it was just this sort of he was ex- he it was a new type of teacher for me you know in this sort of different world and it was just this permission I guess he granted by mm. the way he was to just go for it and learn something else and it was just this very open and new world in a way for me so i suppose because of who he is and how he taught us but also because of that it was that moment in time for me so it is difficult isn't it because like you say there are people that cross across your life at different times and there's a guy i lived with in france for a while called yves le Courier, and he's um turned 100 last year oh my wow. god um, and uh he was a fascinating guy very calm 
very well read, very interesting. And he, he, he talked very passionately about watching the Nazis march into Saint Malo in the Second World War wow. and, uh, and also God, yeah. watching them march oh, out again five years later. Yeah. Really well. My God. No, completely. I mean, he, he, he you know, he, he can still sing the song that they sung when the liberation happened uh yeah and incredible. um fascinating incredible guy to, to know but i think in terms of making you who you are i think that's a that's a lot of where that question comes from for me and i think my mum you know obviously josh you know this we lost my mum a, a few years ago to a pretty unpleasant illness and but the one thing that i'm so grateful to my mum for is, is 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 a couple of things first of all it's giving me a a sense of adventure my mum had an incredible sense of curiosity and adventure mm. And uh, that stayed with me massively. And and the second thing, which I think is really, really important, is that sense of not taking yourself and life too seriously. And that's oh, not gosh, just yeah. that's not just because it's tinged with tragedy. You know, that is a, that mm. does play a part, definitely. But my mum didn't care what she looked like. My mum didn't care what clothes she wore. She cared about experiences. She cared about the sunset. She cared about having her family around her she cared about a beautiful day nice food great company laughter she didn't care about the things that often preoccupy us on a daily basis she didn't care about work she enjoyed her work and she took great pleasure in getting kids through their education and so on but she didn't get up in the morning with that sense of ambition and drive to make money her whole raison d'etre if you like was to experience the world around her and that really lived with me and that kind of not taking life too seriously, finding the fun in everything. That, that's a big part of who I am. You know, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah, that's a good oh, that's lesson. A, yeah, great lesson. I, I couldn't agree more, I think. And I, certainly as I get older is that real feeling of experiences are just worth, you know, the one thing I think that I've taken away from sailing, I have so much greater appreciation of the small things. And, you know, I made that joke earlier about cold beers and hot showers, but every night to this day, it's been 10 years, Every night I go to bed in a dry, stationary, warm double bed. I'm grateful for it. And every every morning I stand under the shower and hot water pours out of the tap. It is, you know, but you extrapolate that out to everything in life. I, I think, yeah. Yeah. And that's a great lesson to learn. Yeah. Gratitude. And all, I mean, it's, it's, it is, it's an important thing to have in, in your life, yeah. I think, to, 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 yeah, to take that moment and go, this is pretty good. 